Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Irish Sport and Exercise Science Association podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Wardrop, and today I'm catching up with not one, but two professors. We are getting very fancy in this episode. Professor Marie Murphy from Ulster University and Professor Neve Murphy from SETU Waterford are both eminent researchers in the field of physical activity, exercise and health. Combined, they have decades of experience and have worked together on so many projects that people suggested I should consider them a double X and have them both on the podcast at the same time. So, Neva Marie, you are very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks a million, Bruce. So, as I said there, you have worked extensively together. Looking through your list of publications, there are many, many projects that you've, you've worked together on. Getting Ireland Active, iParks, Student Activity and Sport Ireland Survey, the GOPA, the list just goes on and on. That got me wondering, though, despite all the work you guys have done together, can you recall the first time that you met each other? I think I first became aware of Neve when I was working in Ulster University and she was in Queen's University. So we were two Southerners living up in the north and she must have done a, a presentation at a basis conference, uh, the British Association of Sports Sciences, and it must have been good because a couple of days later, I got this lovely complimentary email from Mike Gleason, a, a giant in our field, complimenting me on how wonderful the presentation was, how he was interested in the work on bone health, and he'd love to connect. And it suddenly dawned on me I wasn't even at that conference so I realized there was another Murphy and he had looked me up and I think that's when we first connected me was that your- yeah and I had been mistaken for Marie several times before that so they people would say things to me about gymnastics or about walking or um and I didn't know for a while what they were talking about and then it dawned on me oh there's this other person called Murphy that where we kept getting mistaken for each other so we our paths then eventually crossed so we will just clear that up you're not sisters no 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 and actually when we go away to conferences they always say oh but you have the same name and I go well Murphy's kind of a common name um but I guess I'm fortunate they often wherever we go we'll get my name right because Marie's a relatively easy one but my gosh have we heard some pronunciations of Neve over the years (laughs) and I I just have to smirk the the, the Europeans have massacred Neve's name on many occasions my wife is also an Eve and she okay. has Niam, Niamha is the one she gets yeah, quite a bit. We heard a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So when I speaking about going away to conferences and things like that together, um, many people have highlighted to me the fact that when it comes to your work, um, you are get must get multiple, multiple invites to many conferences around the world. But they've also told me that when it comes to choosing which conferences you go to, it's often the uh, qualities of the host city that uh, that help to influence the decision on which conferences you go to. Is that a, a fair comment that I've heard? I let Neve start with that because she's the master. Well, the host city. Well, there's kind of, with, for our area, there's always some set ones. One is the HEPA Europe conference and that moves around. So something that's in Dublin next year, for example. So uh, they're not always in far-flung places, but the, that particular conference is one that we never miss. And that's in you know different parts of Europe all the time. Um, then there've been a couple of ones that have been far flung. And usually when we go to those places, we try and stay on and we try and experience the place. So two in particular, one was the HEPA Europe conference actually in, um, in uh, Istanbul, Turkey. 
Yes, in, in Istanbul. And for the conference, we saw nothing except for four walls and concrete. And then along with a few friends, Nanette Nutri and Catherine Woods and a few people, we decided we'd stay and we explored the place. So we try and do that if we can. We had one very memorable trip to Brazil where we visited. It was a huge amount of travel, went to a lot of universities around Brazil and made some incredible friends and made some incredible contacts. But again, and that was really memorable because we were trying out the bicycles in Rio de Janeiro, which were very new. And we had all kinds of tourists stopping us and asking us how you do it. And yeah, we have. We've been so lucky. We've gone to lots of great places together. Yeah. I should say Neve is the best travel companion, both academic and as a friend. Um, she's at half six. She'll hear her saying, will we go for a quick run? Or even it could be seven, half seven. She's like, I think we have time to get a quick run in and breakfast and get to the conference center in the next 40 minutes. And so it, every day tends to start early and finish late. And she is a master at planning and organizing and booking accommodation. She really is. In her next life, she could be a travel agent. One thing we usually try and do, actually, Bruce, of these things is rather than just staying in hotels, we usually try and just book a, a house. It's Well, it's more reasonable as well. And then we'll have all our postgrads and other colleagues from other universities there as well. So it just means that if a conference is supposed to be a networking opportunity, by God, it really is. So, um, yeah, it's great. We usually We usually really milk all of that. So if you're to think about all the places you've been, which which host city jumps out to you as your favourite and, and why was it your favourite? Gosh, um, whew, Istanbul was amazing, but I probably would have to say Rio because Rio was both the start and the finish of a big tour, as 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 uh, Neve was saying, we, we got down to Pelotas, to Pedro Halal, we got to um, Sao Paulo for their um, their uh, International Activity Day with um, with uh, Victor Matsudo and Mike Pratt and Fiona Bull. We took buses, planes, trains, and automobiles, literally, and one very memorable journey with a couple of caipirinhas taken on, on the beach, um, one memorable journey on public transport, because we like public transport, up through the Flavellas, which was probably the most memorable bus journey I've ever had. <laughs> does that uh, does that match with your memory, Neve? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was the, the most incredible trip. Well, we've had great trips everywhere. And Leuven in Belgium, even just this last uh, September was, or August even, was pretty special too. Uh, they've all been different and really enjoyable, yeah. If we stick with the cities that you visited, I'm sure that you guys can recall places that have well thought out infrastructure and perhaps lots of investment that has made physical activity more accessible to the people who live there. What can we learn from these cities and what do you think we could implement here in Ireland? Well, I mean, Neve's an expert on cycling, but I'll, I'll cite Amsterdam as one of the places that I've repeatedly gone back to with work, um, with European projects, with conferences, and you can't beat the infrastructure there. And if anyone tells you that, you know, we can't do that here because, um, you know, there's too much, too many cars already there or that we get bad, they get, we get bad weather and people won't cycle. Well, Amsterdam, same amount of rainfall and had a similar traffic issue and has managed to transform it. So in terms of an active city, I, I, you can't look too much further than Amsterdam. And what? What have they done over there that helped them to, to achieve that? 
Well, I think firstly they made car they made um, the car a, a much a more difficult way of traveling. You know, they, they've made they've given right of way to cyclists and pedestrians, and they become the priority in almost all their decision making. So their infrastructure um, first and foremost thinks about how do cyclists and walkers get from A to B and all the different connections. And indeed, you know, you go to the train station and there are multi-story cycle parks, not multi-story car parks. Um, pedestrians and cyclists are everywhere. And it makes car journeys more difficult for sure. And I think it's a bit of both. It's making one thing very easy and making the other thing very you know, difficult. And, and, and that pushes people in the right direction. Yeah, just to, just to add to that, um, Marie and I used to go over quite regularly to Copenhagen because we were on the HEPA Europe steering group and Copenhagen was the headquarters at the time of, of WHO Europe. So we, we've gone over and back there quite a lot and would always take public transport, always use bicycles to get to and from the WHO building. Um, so it, it just becomes part of life and it's just wonderful to see it that way and it doesn't matter what the weather's like as Marie said so when you've got dedicated lanes and you've got people with uh, their tiny babies behind them and on the in their trolleys and the whole thing is just it's part and parcel of what they do so we in Ireland here now um, have been both Marie and I part of IPARC the Irish Physical Activity Research Collaboration for quite a number of years and the Department of Transport have been very active members of that for the last number of years and we're starting to see really hopeful signs in Ireland as well that things are moving in the right direction there's never been more investment in sustainable transport than there is now and now in IPARC we've people like Lorraine Darcy, people who are linked in to the whole transport and planning side of things. And that's so important that they're connected in and, and with the physical activity and sport community as well. Yeah, I'd have to say in the north, I think we're we lag a little bit behind. So I, I think what's going on down south is really positive, um, and I'm hopeful that having this I Park, which is an all island collaboration, that over time the north will be able to take some of the lessons learned and, and apply them a bit better. I feel um, myself. I, I see where I where I live here in, in Tremor and Waterford that they are trying to make um, active travel more accessible, but there is incredible resistance from. The public and from car drivers is it is do you notice that it's more ingrained here in ireland the difficulty or is that something that's experienced around the world and the, you know the policies just have to be politicians or whoever's making the decisions have to be persistent uh, and uh, to get their their, their well, it was like through. that in amsterdam at one time there was huge opposition and people saw no this could never happen so it, it is just a natural resistance and things things turn um so I think it. I do think it will turn. Now, of course, you have to have the infrastructure there to be able to support people. So, until such a time as we get our planning situation right, I mean, we can't all build our own houses spread out into the country and expect to have good public transport links after that. So, you know, we need to plan our cities and our towns with a view to being able to provide public transport for everybody in those towns. So that'll take time. It's not going to happen tomorrow um, or even yeah. next year. So, but it will, and it will take time, but it is happening. And I just want to main, mention one small example of this. Um, Katrina Corr is a PhD student in SETU down in Watford, and she is an embedded PhD researcher in Kilkenny Council. And she's having, you know, doing wonderful work 
being the kind of mediator, the connecting person between the planners, the the people, the engineers, the you know the people on the ground who are doing this the, the, this thinking about what's going to what Skilkenny going to look like in five or ten years time. Um, so I think there's examples of good practice now starting to to come through. We could mention lots of them, and mm-hmm. at the IPART conference we we've tried to highlight some of these things to try and you know bring people on board. Yeah, I think you need a champion at high level. And sometimes the problem is governments change and they change quickly. And so you have a champion and then it goes out of fashion. So you do need a champion at high level. I know up here we have a a walking and cycling champion, um, but you need somebody to champion it at the highest level. And and maybe also you need a carrot and stick, you know, so you you need to tempt people into it and have the infrastructure. But you also need to make it difficult to, to 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 use to have car usage um i know that there was great kickback to the 20th plenty campaign that that has gone on I, I now work in edinburgh as well and colleagues in edinburgh were involved in this trying to get the 20 mile an hour zone and there was great pushback from people wanting to drive at 30 rather than 20 so it would seem like a pretty easy thing a pretty nice solution to make the environment a bit more friendly cycling and walking friendly but there was huge pushback so when you get that pushback i think you do need high level champions in government who are prepared to say no this is the direction of travel this is for all the reasons for for our health for environmental health for to make the neighborhoods better for future proofing our communities i think um you do need some high level champions that are prepared to take a bit of the flack when, when, when the motoring community come at them I certainly think, yeah, anyone in the Green Party down here must have a very, very thick skin at the moment mm-hmm. with the plans to try and divert traffic out of Dublin City. And uh, at the moment, it seems to be pretty topical. There's lots of the news about that and a lot of vitriol, uh, particularly at Eamon Ryan, I think, at the moment. But mm-hmm. I think he seems like he's trying to do a good job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I also uh, I, I got a sense, Neve, that when you were talking about the, the the trips that you take and when you when you go away, that you try to uh, you rent a house rather than staying in, in a hotel, so that you can bring people together, um, and that I, I get a sense that you know friendships and and when you come and to pick projects. Uh, the, the people you're working with are often more important to you than the, but then perhaps the project you're working with or that good quality projects will come from from working with people that you enjoy working with. Does that uh, ring true to you? Oh, absolutely, Bruce. It's funny. Um, we've been working with, you know, some of the same people over a long, long period of time and then and other people change over, over that time, especially I mentioned iPark already, which is a good example of it. But like some of the work that Marie and I have been in, involved with and, Doing this podcast really made me reflect on it. The some of the work to try and get a physical activity policy in in Ireland. We've been at this for years. It's scary when you sit down. And I got a picture of my kids at one stage, and they were small when this all started. And now, twenty years on, we're still at it. And the new physical activity policy, we're, you know, we're still advocating for that to come through. So you'd go mad if you weren't deriving some bit of fun out of it. You know, you have to find something that that will sustain you through this constant uh, advocacy kind of work. Uh, And the people, for me, uh, is what absolutely sustains me. So in those early days, we called on our international linkages to to help us. So we had Nanette Neutry who came over to Ireland and spoke with some of the government ministers. We tried to get people together. We had Adrian Bowman from Sydney coming over. Um, So that type of thing, we tried to use all of these networks that we'd built through making personal connections at, at, uh, at conferences and so on. And they really, really helped us, didn't they, Marie? 
Yeah, I mean, I have to say that has been the most the most pleasurable part of my career is the people I've worked with. And as Neve says, over time, you begin to gravitate towards the same group of people um, because they're just good and easy to work with. And it's even brought me into areas which wouldn't have been my expertise, but because I liked the idea of the project, but really liked the collaborators, I've worked with them and, and I have been privileged. Like, you know, Nanette Mutri, Adrian Bowman are just two. I, I, I've worked with Steve Blair, Bill Haskell, Aymin Lee. These are the leaders in our field. And what I have found is actually the better they are as academics, almost the more willing they are to work with you. It's kind of the middle ranking people that have an opinion of themselves that I avoid because they tend to be very difficult and they have just, they have egos that are, that are larger than their intellects. Whereas those big guys with superb intellects usually are more than willing to help. And now at my age or our age, should I say, I think it's lovely to be able to mentor other people. And actually you find that the ones that you're mentoring are the ones that are like-minded. And, and I particularly like to try to mentor female academics because certainly when we started, there was a, a pretty a, a dominance of, of men and, and, and maybe a, a kind of an approach that was very male. And I think, you know, we've learned that we can, that we, that we do more when we collaborate better. And I think, hate to say this, Bruce, but I think women are, tend to be more natural collaborators, great men collaborators as well, but women more naturally collaborate. I'm highly offended. <laughs> Didn't mean to. You're the exception. <laughs> Um, well, you, you mentioned mentors there, and I, I, I spoke to Giles Warrington recently, and he espoused the, 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 the power of mentors in his career. Some of the people that you've mentioned there, do I get a sense that they may have acted as mentors to you in your careers? Yeah, I mean, I'm so fortunate, so fortunate to have met such great people. What's that? There's some quote about standing. I've seen far because I've stood on this, uh, the shoulders of giants. Uh, and, and in my case, that's definitely the case. I, I had um, I had I, I started my career working for Sue Campbell. Dame Sue Campbell um, in, in the National Coaching Foundation, a visionary in coaching and in sport. I then was supervised by Professor Adrian Hardman at Loughborough University. Again, taught me almost everything I know about good science and about writing. Um, I then was fortunate to meet the Steve Blairs, the Iman Lees. Nanette has been a, a close mentor probably for both of us. And I mean, a mentor in, 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 in more than just my academic life. She, she really has been, you know, she's one stage ahead of us and, and has really at every stage been able to give such sage advice. Um, and I know, I know Neve, Neve has worked so closely with Adrian Bowman. So yeah, I, I, I've been fortunate. I've only named a few. There are at least another five or six that I could name, but all all have taught me so much and I, I am so grateful. And even at the time, you didn't realize what they were teaching you. When you look back, you realize, actually, I learned that bit from them and this from them. I think that's a sign of a good mentor, isn't it? That they're not preaching at you. You're just you're, you're learning, absor absorbing it from them. Neve Marie mentioned Adrian there. I know you have worked extensively, extensively with him. How did that relationship with Adrian uh, come about? Well, that came about because... Uh, at one stage, I had applied for and been successful in getting a grant. At the time, in the Institute of Technology sector, which we were then, there was, you know, they were trying to develop research. And this particular grant, it was supposed to be a three-year grant to build a kind of a research team. Um, and you, you had a small amount of buyout, teaching buyout, because in our area, I still teach quite a lot. So it's a combination of teaching and research. So uh, 
that I got permission at the time from the authorities to hold on to that grant. And that allowed me then to take, which was kind of like a sabbatical. It allowed me to, to, for three years to do that work and just take it on on top of what I was already doing. But then in the fourth year to spend time over in Sydney. I contacted Adrian. He didn't know who I was from Adam. And he, he took me on. When I got there, I realized that every day of the week he is somebody knocking on the door saying, can I come and stay? And I said, what on earth did you take me on for? Why Why did you, you know, I had, I didn't have a big, long, extensive publication list at that stage. I was, re- I, I saw myself as just starting out then. And he said, oh, he said, I looked at the kind of stuff that you, you do, community-based work with practically no budget. And he said, something about that just appealed to me. Um, so, and he has been absolutely so influential in my career, but not just me, my colleagues as well. Uh, two or three of our colleagues, Bruce in SETU, have been mentored by Adrian. He regularly will give us the benefit of his expertise on things. And he's a great guy. He's so, you know, worldwide, he is considered an absolute world leader in so many aspects of physical activity research um, and the most incredibly generous guy with his time and his expertise um i fully echo what marie said about the real experts (laughs) they are just so generous with their with their time and knowledge yeah and neve introduced me to adrian so i didn't know adrian and because neve i mean neve upped and moved family and all and went to australia and and, you know and uh, with a, a real determination to to learn more and bring the learning back but then she introduced me to adrian adrian's now an honorary professor at university of edinburgh where i'm i'm a center director and he he gives his time so so willingly he's coming over to us for a week in september and a brain, if you wanted to pick a brain, you couldn't get a better brain than Adrian Bowman's to pick. He's incredibly knowledgeable. He's, he's the nearest thing I've probably met to a polymath. And I, I don't want to gloss over it, Neve. that just, that whole relationship that you've both spoke so, 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 so lovely about, that came from an email that you sent to him. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I really liked his work. I, I loved the pragmatic side of what he does. Um, and yeah, I just contacted him and said hi yeah that was really it Bruce just reached out and said hello and it's you know one thing if there is any young researchers out there listening to this they should never be afraid to do that ever yeah Um, and my yeah my my Steve Blair story is exactly the same and people go how did you get publishing with Steve Blair I mean Lord of Mercy on Steve Blair he died last year but like phenomenal phenomenal um uh physical activity researcher and I I had heard him present at a conference and I can't quite remember where ACSM I want to say maybe wherever it was and I thought he's talking about breaking up exercise into short bouts and he happened to put my study in he didn't really you know dwell on it but it was in there and I went up at the end you know shaking a little bit a bit worried and I said hello Professor Blair I'm Marie Murphy you see that study I'm that Murphy and you know what I'd love to have an idea for a study immediately yeah that would be great come on let's go grab a coffee sat down with me talked about it and we eventually wrote a systematic review together you know this is a guy who who did not need any involvement with me he had more than enough to do but he was willing to give me his time and eventually to work with me yeah, I think it's important just to reach out and ask, the, like, what's the worst that can happen? Someone doesn't respond or exactly. maybe they say no. You're no worse off in that situation, but they might say yes. And who yep. knows what it could lead to. Exactly. Uh, I've heard plenty of other stories uh, about both of you. Neve, you, you, you um, just reminded me there of one. So I, the, the, 
there's a story I heard about, you know, your, your sense of equity and fairness uh, that yourself and Noel, your husband, both entered a 10K race and you both won your respective age groups uh, in the race. Noel was awarded 100 euros or maybe 100 pounds for winning the race and you were given a hair curlers. <laughs> that, That's right, actually. Does that ring a bell? I forgot about that. That was actually when I was working up in Belfast um, many years ago. So I would have done my master's and my PhD up in Belfast and then worked at Queen's University. So, uh, yeah, that was back going back a while now. And that was the norm that female athletes were awarded prizes that were far lesser than their male counterparts. And I, I hasten to add that kind of when we look at the, at the, the you know, the, the, the standards, they were very similar. So I was running a decent 10K time at that time. Um, but yeah, that was true. So when it came to my re- receiving my prize, I just went up and I, I just said, um, I respectfully decline this prize. And I just, you. so I, and there was a bit of kerfuffle on the stage. I had already spoken to the other girls who were second and third. And one of them said, one of them said, oh, I wouldn't dare do that. And the other said, oh, maybe I will. So the girl who was second then kind of, faltered and she went and took hers the girl who was third then didn't so that, that's what happened so then then somebody took note of it and uh next thing on the radio the following day on bbc um liz mccolgan was on and she because it had it, this, this had brought something up about so she was on so it went everywhere it went it went <laughs> it went viral at the time um so anyway i'm not saying that it, my, i was the person who changed that but it, it, i do remember that i've forgotten about that story yeah, I, I have one like that, but unfortunately, I didn't use it as well as you did. Um, I, I did something for a a well known governing body of rugby in the north, and uh, it was it there was two medics speaking, and then myself, and it was for referees, and I had been invited through a contact, and um, it was at the the very well known <laughs> known uh, grounds, and uh, at the end, the the two medics were presented with an envelope, which I can only assume was a check. I, I might not be right there. I don't fully know, but I got a little wrapped bottle of perfume. Because <laughs> I guess they thought I'd like that better than a check. <laughs> and you you say you didn't leverage that quite as no, well as I just Well, I didn't know what to do because I wasn't sure that the other envelopes had actually been checks, but I, I, I suspected that since the three of us were being given something and theirs were flat white envelopes, <laughs> they might be. So I didn't, I didn't say anything. And to be fair, I didn't want to cause offence. And this is sometimes... You sometimes go through, it's the balance between not wanting to cause offence and also just highlighting something that they might not even be aware of. They might not even be aware that, you know, that, that this is an issue. Yeah, I think it's 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 important to be brave in those circumstances and, you know, sometimes, yeah. you know, be damned with the consequences, just go with it. Yeah. Um, you both we, we've hinted there actually you both have a sporting background so I, I know you're you're both uh, good runners and Neve you do a bit of coaching and I think Marie you started out as a PE teacher is that right? Yeah I, I mean I, I am not a runner not compared to Neve and I am in very I'm in very good company because because Neve's, Neve's a, a pretty uh, a, a pretty good runner right yes, through you are career. a runner we're well, always running together excuse me yes, you run, I, am a, a runner. I am a runner sorry I am a runner I'm a very slow runner but yes I started life as a PE teacher and I was um a high jumper in my day and and that's where our that's probably our only athletics connection we probably were on in similar Irish schools teams um I, I, when I was a high jumper stroke long jumper but Neve Neve was Neve it was and is the runner and continues to be the athlete but I'm involved in coaching gymnastics as well that was my first love and I am involved at the city of Lisburn um Centre of Excellence here. I'm a director and a, and a coach in, in, in women's gymnastics. 
So yeah, well, you're both still heavily involved in sport, which leads me nicely into the direction that I, I was kind of going with this. Um, you know, obviously getting people active through playing sport is is really good tool for enhancing public health. But I was wondering, have you guys, um, and has your research highlighted any other ways that we could leverage sport or sports clubs perhaps uh, to enhance public health? Yeah, I've been involved, Bruce, a good bit over the past number of years uh, with with a couple of sports club for health type projects. And there is within the Happy Europe Network, there is a, a, a very strong movement at the moment in this area. So um, Aoife Lane, who is a colleague of ours in, in SETU, she led on a project, the, the original GAA Healthy Clubs project, which has gone from strength to strength. So that are very early um, evaluation. Myself and Aoife were involved with that. And then uh, Aoife, really took that on and ran with it and now the GAA are, are absolutely you know, doing wonderful work on that. Just last night actually um, I was visiting a, a club and in Mayo and they have been incredibly active and they active, you know, they can see that it's great to see it embedded in the club, not just a, something that's stuck on a wall. You know, you, you see this quite a lot. The, at the moment, the Ireland Lights Up campaign is on where they just simply turn the lights on in the clubs. And we have a PhD student, Nicola Briggs, who's who's evaluating that uh, at the minute. So, yeah. So and perhaps, I, Just yeah, before sorry, we move on, sorry, no, Neve, to tell us a little bit more about that. So what's the benefits of just turning the lights on? What, what, how is that helping other people? Well, talk about a simple intervention. Yeah, sometimes interventions don't have to have lots of bells and whistles. So there's a GA club in every tiny corner of Ireland. Uh, often they're in rural areas where people can't go and walk in the wintertime. And simply by putting lights on, you can make a place accessible. And so there's been a then different clubs do different things. Some people have organized walking groups. Some people have a very informal setup. And Nicola has been going around to all arts and parts of Ireland trying to capture what exactly is going on, trying to capture the numbers that are turning up and why they're there. Social connection being a huge driver for, for a lot of this. So it's, it's a really nice example of where the sporting club and what both Marie and I have kind of moved away from sort of elite sport in terms of our research at any rate, um, into more physical activity at the promotion at the at the population level. But there's a huge synergy there. I, I firmly believe there's a huge synergy there. Um, and, you know, that's another massive change from, I think, Marie, to when we started out. There was, both of us were PE teachers. We both trained initially as PE teachers. And at that time, there was, there was the PE fraternity who were kind of minding their corner. Oh, we were kind of minding our corner. And then there was sport. And then there was people in health. But it was all very separate. They didn't really, we didn't really work together very well. We saw, that's my corner, that's your corner. Um, and that's very different now, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that I, I, I haven't been involved in the way Neve has with the sports clubs per se, but I've watched that the way the Gaelic, uh, the GAA have really involved communities in, in getting active. Not that not the players. I mean, the players, OK, I think they're already catering for their players from underage right through. But now those associated or those ex-players or those who never wanted to play, but are part of that community. And I think the GAA in particular is such a powerful tool. I did a I did a seminar for them a couple of weeks ago for one of the local large clubs in Belfast, St. John's. And um, we had an online thing and they were asking me to talk about walking just as they were launching their Ireland Lights Up. And um, just the range of people that were now committed because they were 
committed members of the club. You know, it was the lure that got them in. A little bit like the Nanette Mutri and Co. have done the football fans in training and that spread to Europe. The club, the sports club, in its true sense, can be a really, really powerful tool to hook people in to physical activity. And, you know, as, as, as Neve says, Happy Europe have some working groups on this. And now there, some of the working groups are thinking not just about hooking them in for physical activity, but hooking them in for other health behaviors. It's fascinating. Yeah, I know. And you both are, um, I th- you, you favor community-based projects. So why, you know, let's explore that a little bit more. So what's the real strength in doing projects based in the community when you're trying to, to enhance public health? Well, from my point of view, that's we're all part of it, communities and that it makes them sustainable. So you can when you're doing research, you can get funding. Typically, the way things work is you might get a pot of funding and then you might do your your, uh, you know, feasibility work and then you, you run your trial and then you finish your trial. And that's that. But both Marie and I have had a particular leaning towards uh the, the pragmatic side of this, what's what's the point in having a fantastic intervention with loads of bells and whistles if it doesn't remain afterwards? And I really try and operate out of that as much as I can. And that's why working in communities, it mightn't be the fanciest project in the world. And maybe, you know, but but if it's if it's going to keep going, in my mind, it's better than, you know, the most fanciest, perfect yeah. uh, intervention so and then you know it's just it's just the people are just it's about people that's what it is it's about people again and this seems keeps to keep on coming back to people but that's what sustains me and it's i think what sustains a lot of people uh in life you know those connections that we make and that's why physical activity can be so brilliant it can pull all kinds of people together um, so I just think it's for me anyway, it's it's the the passion. It's where my passion lies. And yeah, yeah and Neve and I have traveled a similar journey. We both did PhDs, which were very much about um, or structured exercise interventions, measuring physical outcomes. In Neve's case, it was bone health and a lot of the biomarkers. In mine, it was cardiovascular markers and it was walking and whatever. And and. and you realize over time that we now are pretty confident that this thing called physical activity or exercise is good. The really holy grail is how do we get people to do it? And that really comes down to designing interventions which are A, effective, they have to be effective, but are are low cost because it's all, budget's always an issue and sustainable. And it's the low cost and sustainable that me- means that you absolutely must embed it in something. And there can be no better something to embed it in than community because that helps make it sustainable. And, and if there is a little bit of funding, well, that's where it'll come from. So I think, I think it, it makes good science sense as well as, you know, as well as feeling right, it makes good sense to embed an intervention that, you know, works in a community to make it sustainable. I can listen to the two of you talk there. I can hear real passion coming through from those, those type of projects that you've done. If you were to think back uh, in terms of the projects that you have worked on and the ones that have had that real world impact, community based projects, which one do you think has had the most impact or which one was your, your, your favourite and, and why was it your favourite? Hmm. Probably have some of your Kilkenny stuff, um, Neve. I'm thinking. Yeah, and some of them are still going on. Um, yeah, some of the Kilkenny stuff, Barry Lamb started out doing measuring every single fifth and sixth class student in Kilkenny 
and Clanmel and Dungarvan many years ago. And also every fifth, no, fourth and fifth, uh, sorry, second and fifth year student as well across all those towns. And then over five years, looked at what happens when you start putting in different levels of infrastructure. Dungarvan got more infrastructure money than the others. So it was a really nice natural experiment. And then now we have Katrina following that on another five or eight years later, and we're starting to see the impact. So now that's 12 or 13 years have passed and we're still doing it. So that is what really I like, you know, when I, and I see not just infrastructural changes, but changes in the way people think and the way people feel about active travel and being active in a town and, you know, making a place feel like it's somewhere that we want to be so that's probably my favorite project yeah come to think of it yeah i mean neve's done a lot more longer term and community-based projects than i have briefed so i i I don't think i have anything on the kind of scale that needs talking about but i I guess some of the ones that i've liked the best are are the ones that we've tried to go into schools and target the kids that are are inactive and and that largely comes down to the fact that i probably like the three of us loved sport at school and then I started teaching PE and I couldn't understand these people who really did not like sport and did not like the things that I thought were just so joyous and brilliant. And that has kind of set me on a path of constantly looking at how we change the physical activity of the people that really don't like what's on offer. And so the, our most recent study was a, a large cross-border study, um, unfortunately hit massively by COVID, uh, started in, in 2019. Um, but it, it was looking at a, a walking intervention in schools, so something as simple as walking. Again, I go back to this low-cost sustainable, um, based upon the fact that inactive girls, the non-sporty girls were telling us they wanted an activity that uh, they could do with the friends and they could have a chat and be social that didn't require them to change into PE kit or to sports gear. That didn't mean that didn't require them to have to stay after school. Um, these were some of the kind of elements that were coming out from a focus group work. And we designed an intervention based on walking with peer leaders led by peers so that the teachers didn't get involved. So we, 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 we finished that in, in schools, as I say, with lots of challenges and, and the results are mixed they're they're probably not quite we anticipated but the learning we've had along the way and the buy-in from schools from teachers and 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 school leaders who said to us this is exactly what we need we need something that is can be done at break at lunchtime that the girls buy into that isn't the other offering which we do quite well the sport offering and the that offering for for the other group the majority actually who don't of girls who don't like what we're offering. So I think that's probably been the most heartening for me. I guess our questions at this stage is where we go next with this, because it's been a big trial, massively disrupted by COVID, and we have to kind of gather our thoughts to see where we take it next. Well, on that, if we, if you guys could, if you guys could make one change on the island of Ireland to impact public health, what is it? Now, think big. What is it that mm. you would introduce or perhaps something that you might take away uh, to, to, to have an impact, a significant impact on public health? What would you do? OK, I'm going to jump in. And this is the PE teacher. In me. I'd love to see 30 minutes of physical activity in every school every day um, and, and, and not and, and I'm not betraying my profession. I think the PE profession is wonderful, but not put the onus on the PE teacher to do that. It needs to be whole school. I think that the the kind of daily mile thing that you've heard about, I think that was going in that right direction. You know, I think the notion of getting the whole school 
staff, students, everybody active every day is good. I think it's been sometimes it's twisted. The, the Daily Mile one, it, it, it has become in, in some schools, on the, the ones that I've seen, um, a race and who does the best and who does it the quickest. And that takes us back exactly where we don't want. So I think some sort of whole of school daily physical activity legislated so that school cannot, you know, Christmas play, we're not going to use the sports hall. Exams on, we're going to get rid of uh, the 30 minutes of physical, 30 minutes every day in schools would help because it would help make physical activity a daily habit for kids. And I think it's the habitualness of physical activity that we need to instill in people before they move into adulthood. And would I that think be, that's mine. That's, yeah, no, that's great. And I'm, I'm just, like, that could be 30 minutes continuous or 30 minutes accumulated. I'm just, yeah, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in, in other countries, they do this. So they, they have, you know, a, an hour a day of physical activity in primary schools in, in, in some of our the Nordic countries. So it can be done if the will is there. So and imagine if you take that one step further and you have an hour a day, every every child knows that that's part of their day. Why not then that every worker gets an hour a day and you use it for your activity and that it, it just becomes the norm? And then we solve lots of issues in society, I reckon. Um, and, and I think we could think big. And, and it, it, I think it should be part and parcel of what we do, who we are, not an additional extra that people try and think about tagging on. I think, yeah, we see it in work ourselves. Um, is it called Walk, Walktober? Where we, you know, every October, the, everyone gets together in groups and they try to have, meet their step challenge. But then the minute the end of the month comes around, it's forgotten about for another 11 months. So it can be done. It doesn't disrupt work too much, uh, but it doesn't seem to, to stick or continue. Neve, would you agree? Is that, is that your big change or is there anything else that you'd... Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think that's it. It's, it shouldn't be anything fancy, really. It's again that some of these things are dead basic, but you know, an hour a day of activity time is is a given. You know, if, if that is part and parcel of your daily uh, activity, then yeah, non-negotiable. That would, that would suit me. Yeah. Okay, we're nearly there. I have one more question that I want to ask. Neve. I think if you looked down at Marie's research profile and our publication list, it is clear that she is definitely a heavy hitter when it comes to her work. But I also heard a story about a time where you experienced just how much of a heavy hitter she is when she gave you a black eye. Is that true? <laughs> no, first, first of all, Marie is a huge heavy hitter when it comes to research. No, I'm not. Way more than I am, and, and that is absolutely true. No, the black eye came from. And we mentioned earlier that we always try and use public transport. We always try and use any bikes or whatever we are, and that was in Nice at the Happy Europe conference the year before last, and. Uh, we used bikes all the time. On this particular occasion, we probably weren't quite going along with the rules of the road. And Marie was doing some fairly impressive crushing uh, <laughs> across train tracks and the like. And I stupidly followed her. So that was my own fault, probably, rather than rather than her. So I was I was telling her she was going down the wrong way, but she didn't hear me. So I took off after her and I my bike went into a train track and I fell over and I ended up with this big massive black eye first week back in college teaching there I was with this huge big black eye trying to tell these first years why physical activity is good for them 
Brilliant. The moral of this story is never follow Marie Murphy on a bike. Neve is a way more accomplished and, and, and safe cycler. At one point, the police were following me on a bike and I couldn't see them. But um, this is in Nice. And Neve said they were going to get you. I was, it was on a tram line and I was going not only in the wrong direction, but across tram lines. So really not a good person to follow. But I reckon it was just just reward for a toothbrush incident where um, we leave. We, we won't tell the full story of that one. <laughs> there is definitely this devilment in the pair of you, and you are you are a good double act. Uh, Neve and Marie, it has been really really fun. I really enjoyed this episode. It's been interesting and it's been enjoyable chatting to the two of you. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Brilliant. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it immensely. Thanks a million, Bruce. Thanks, Marie.